You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is your beacon of truth back in session for a new week here. This is Daniel Horowitz back at the conservative conscience. It's early Monday afternoon, August 27th, and uh, playtime is almost over. The summer has come and gone, and uh, the critters will be back in full uh, full session next Tuesday. Not that much will change because they're doing nothing now and they'll do nothing when they return as well. Um, but actually, they are doing some bad stuff, even with the limited session at least the Senate is having. And we're going to discuss that in a couple of moments. Um, the one good thing is actually that the kids will finally go back to school. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's been a long summer with them here. So I'm actually... I'm actually really lonely recording from my my home studio. Um, my wife took the three boys to my in-laws in in Virginia just for a couple days, and uh, it's always tough being apart. You know, it's it's good having a break from the screaming with the kids, but you know, like like it says in Genesis, you know, God said it's not good for man to be alone. So, <laughs> awfully lonely, and as as it is the case with. Uh, you know, the political world as well, it's, it's a lonely place to be in, trying to focus on the most important issues, the most important strategies, the most important things that are addressable from a public policy standpoint, when it's constantly about everything but that in the political world, in the news, in the liberal media, and then by reflection, in the conservative media, and there's always something to distract and you know today we have the death of Senator John McCain, and certainly I don't want to call that a distraction in the sense that you know it's uh, not important to mark and tribute, pay tribute to his his life, particularly his heroism in the Vietnam War. Uh, but what the media is trying to do with it, and that is very disturbing, uh, you know as. I've always said from day one, you always have to separate out political issues from personal issues. Um, when things come up in the news, you have to understand, well, what's a political issue and what's not a political issue? And a political issue you could address with politics. A non-political issue shouldn't be addressed with politics. Um, the death of an elected official in and of itself, the actual death, is not a political issue. It's, it's said – whether it's an untimely death or whether you know the person died of old age, uh, that's that's very sad, and you know that's not political. That is said for the family. It's said for um, the individual, and you know in this case, obviously, you know just the whole that whole brain cancer is just particularly um, gut wrenching. I've I've had a lot of that in my extended family friends just recently. Just seems like a lot of people are getting that. Uh, it's devastating. It's it's almost always a death sentence, and um, you know, often it, it it you know they go after three to six months or so. I actually have one relative, my father's older brother. He's hung on for two and a half years. Um, it's almost miraculous, uh, but so you know, may God continue to give him strength. But um, this was you know it's very sad when we first heard McCain was diagnosed with it, and certainly. Um, you know, it was just sad hearing about his his death, and you know that's the thing. I mean, obviously, if Bernie Sanders or Dianne Feinstein or Chuck Schumer, I mean, even a, a pure Democrat, much less a liberal Republican, were to pass away, you know, as a conservative, I certainly uh, don't wish death on anyone, and that's very sad. Um, I wish retirement and that they spend more time with their grandkids would be great for everyone all around, but um, there's nothing political about that. And uh, you know, it's just it's just very sad. So I just wanted to get that you know out of the way up front. Um, you know, there there really should be nothing else to say on that. And I'd go on to the next topic, but 
I do have to mention a couple of things based on, on the behavior of the media. Obviously, as I said, when an elected official dies, so then you know there is a political aspect. You don't politicize the actual death in either direction. That, that's a tragedy, um, a period of mourning for the family. But you know, when, when you're dealing with an elected senator of any sort, well, there is a vacancy. And obviously in a very closely divided Senate – Although, as we're going to talk about today, it's not really closely divided. It's more 90-10 liberal. But, you know, officially, Republican versus Democrat, as, as it relates to Supreme Court nominees and confirmations, it is very close, razor thin now. And, you know, it is relevant. You know, you got to discuss that. That is, um, you know, the country is more than one person. The seat belongs to the people of Arizona. But, you know, obviously now that all politics is national, unfortunately, um, but that's how it is. It turns out that a lot hinges on that. And what I'm seeing is very disturbing is that the media is using John McCain's death in a transparent political way to shame any opponent of his policies and his politics, which is – very legitimate, to almost silence us, that we have to put our head down this week because you're paying tribute to John McCain, and therefore only someone who shares John McCain's political views could fill that vacancy. Now, let me just get something out of the way here just before anything. What the media is doing is transparently abhorrent because we all know that they only celebrated his heroism in, in the Vietnam War to the extent it was helpful to their political cause. Anyone who lived during the 2008 presidential election remembers that John McCain, really from the time he became prominent in the late 90s until his death just um, Saturday night, they championed him because he was a thorn in the side of conservatives. You know, It was the best type of um, political human shield they had. They had a guy that had this – um, were hero status who happened to be officially a Republican but always undermined conservatives. It was great for them. But then suddenly the only time they didn't celebrate his heroism was from June through November of 2008. In other words, when he was the nominee for the Republican Party for, for president. Then they trashed him. So – Let's just dispense of this notion that there's any good Republican in the eyes of the media because it's only when they're helpful to the cause, which in McCain's case was most of his life, or I mean most of his time in the Senate. But when he actually was the Republican nominee, not in the primary. In the primary, they promoted him both in 2000 and 2008, but in the general election of 2008 – they, they savaged the guy. New York Times even ran an article accusing him of being, you know, cheating on his wife and everything. I mean, they pulled no punches. You know, he was just as bad as Trump or Bush or anyone else in their book during that period. So, so let's, you know, save us your virtue signaling here. What I'm saying is, in this case, the media is pressuring Governor Doug Ducey very overtly to, um, appoint Cindy McCain as wife to the seat. And, and that's where it is legitimate, and I would argue as conservatives and really everyone, we really have an obligation to vigorously argue against that. You know, the fact that she is mourning doesn't mean I can't oppose the media's proposition of appointing her to fill the Senate seat. That is purely a political issue, and that should be subject to a political debate because this is very concerning. The important point to remember here for McCain's seat is that um, because McCain hung on until the very end, this is going to be a long appointment, meaning often you'll have the governor appoint, but it's only for a couple months, and then you hold a special election. All right, so it's just a couple months. In this case, given the just the laws of Arizona, this appointment will last until 2020. So it's going to last for a little bit more than two months. I mean, I'm sorry, two years, not two months, in a very narrowly divided, at least political, um, at least you know, from a political party perspective, 
very sharply divided Senate with a lot of very consequential nominees. You could potentially have another Supreme Court nominee even after the, the current vacancy come up. And you know, this is of utmost importance. And you know, that person will be serving all based on not being elected, just purely an appointment. Now, to be clear, the governor has the power to appoint Mickey Mouse. I mean, he could appoint anyone he wants. You know, he would have to defend or suffer the political consequences based on who he would appoint, but he does have that power. But I would argue from a political standpoint, we need to say, wait a minute. If this person is going to serve for two years unelected, shouldn't we at least appoint someone who was recently elected in some capacity somewhere in the state of Arizona rather than someone like Cindy McCain who is not – was never elected – she was the wife of John McCain, but that doesn't qualify you to be a senator. And I, and I find it really insidious to use someone as a, a mourning as a political human shield. Oh, are you going to criticize Cindy McCain? Well, I'm not criticizing Cindy McCain as a person and someone who is mourning. I'm just saying, like, you know, dude, you can't, you can't do that. You can't shove that on us. So even before we get to their political views, that you know, I would argue, you know. You know, let's cut to the chase here. Part of winning the spoils of war when you win governorships is you win the ability to appoint a, someone, you know, a senator upon a, a vacancy. And obviously, when it's a Democrat governor, they will appoint a Democrat, even if the one who won the seat and died was a Republican, and vice versa. Right, that is just the reality. Let, let's you know, stop the stop making pretend that this is not political. Of course, you are going to appoint someone who shares your values. Now, if the people don't like that, then they can not only vote that person out the next time there's a special election, but they could actually vote the governor out if they didn't like what he did. But you have that power, and traditionally they have used it. You know, a Republican's going to appoint a Republican, Democrat's going to appoint a Democrat. So McCain was a Republican, but he was a Republican that constantly undermined Republicans. He was a liberal Republican on most issues. So the media says, let's appoint someone like him, or some of them are downright saying his wife. No. Just like Democrats, if they had the governorship, they would appoint someone who believes in the Democrat platform. We need someone who will uphold the Republican Party platform, which will unlikely be someone like Cindy McCain. But what I'm, what I'm just trying to tell you is that in addition to this, there is the issue, you know, even aside from the fact that I want a conservative, it's the fact that, you know, I, I do think there is an argument to be made that if they're going to be there for two years unappointed, it would be nicer to appoint someone that somehow was elected and also understands the issues. And we'll hit the ground running from day one. Now, personally, my choice, my number one choice, which means it won't be done, is Congressman Andy Biggs. A, he's by far the most conservative. B, he's a current House member. And there's nobody closer to you know, just understanding what's going on in the Senate now than a current House member. I mean that's the best person to elevate. Yes, it would trigger a special election for the vacancy of his House seat. Um, you know, but I would argue it would be worth it. That would be phenomenal. Doesn't Arizona finally deserve a senator that will stand up for Arizona sovereignty, particularly on immigration? Andy Biggs is your best guy. Now, there are names being floated of former congressmen, um, one more recent than the other, John Shattig and Matt Salmon. I know both of them a little bit. Um, I think I still have their, their phone numbers, or at least I know I have Matt Salmon's phone number. Um, I used to text with him on, on issues when you know he recently left the house. Um, Andy Biggs filled his seat, so I think that you know they would be pretty decent too. Shattuck was was very good when he was um, you know in Congress about fifteen years ago or so, but he's been out for a little longer. Um, you know some of the other people are really unknown quantities that they're you know the treasurer. There's um. Ducey's chief of staff they're banding about, and then certainly Cindy McCain. So those would be my choices. And again, I think this is where we need a conservative movement making the plays. 
The media is pressuring Cindy McCain. We should have a movement saying Andy Biggs is the best conservative, and I think I don't think anyone could deny that. But he's also, I would argue, the most qualified. He was Speaker of the State Legislature. He has state legislative experience. He's a congressman. He's dealing with all the current issues. Just from an Arizona standpoint, if you're going to you know, nominate anyone, and it is going to be a Republican because Doug Ducey, the governor, is a Republican, I have a hard time seeing how you know, it's easier to make a case for anyone but Andy Biggs. But of course, we have no movement doing that. And that's what I want to get to today. The fact that we don't have a movement pressuring various Republican governors, senators, and the president himself to make the right picks, the right plays, the right legislation, doing more or less what we've been doing on this show since its, its inception. But again, I, before I get to that, I just want to sew this point up here that you know what, what I'm a little bit concerned about is the media is already doing this, that they're using John McCain as a bludgeon, not just for the seat, but in general for their views. You know, there's this mourning shaming now that they're shaming people for not properly mourning John McCain. And, and like, really? I mean, that's the media's job? Again, I mean, he was a war hero, but, you know, I, I hate to sound flippant about this, but the media has milked this for 40 years already. It, it, it's very, you know, unfortunately, it's 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 a, become a very much a sore point when, you know, every time, you know, John McCain promoted something that was very wrong-headed. Shut up, he's a war hero, you can't debate that. Well, that's not true. We, we have an obligation to do so. You know, you thank him for his service, but, you know, once you become a senator, you, you can't make the guy infallible. So, you know, unfortunately, they poison the well with that. But, you know, I'm not going to allow them to distract from other things the whole week. Let's face it. I mean, you know, if John McCain had the politics of Jesse Helms, uh, the media wouldn't exactly be doing this. Now, look, J- Jesse Helms didn't, you know, serve in, uh, you know, he wasn't a, a war hero, but you know, I do remember when he died. Um, what was it, ten years ago? It was actually on July, uh, July fourth. Very fitting. You know, he is one of my political heroes. One of my, one of the people that, you know, I view as, you know, I looked up to when I was coming of age politically. You know, he was a prominent senator for 30 years, and I will tell you, there was no respect accorded to him among the conservative media, much less the liberal media. Now, again, you know, there is the kind of Vietnam heroism aspect here that, you know, I think is, you know, makes it more than just being a senator. But I'm just, I'm just saying, let's dispense with the fact that, oh, the media is so respective of people dying and certainly war heroes. It is all to serve a political agenda. That, that that's just the reality of it. So, um, you know, but it's very unfortunate that the media is just running away with this, and and distracting. Um, but but just one other thing, just before we move on, it just you know, just to say about um, a word about the deceased, about John McCain. You know, sometimes you could really appreciate someone even more so when they're, you know, just a an opponent, a political adversary, as he was to, you know, people like us and this audience as conservatives. Man, was that guy tough as nails. I mean, you got to give it to him. He really, I mean, he, he, he was one of the toughest human beings alive. I mean, he was a real battle axe and much to our chagrin politically, but he was, you know, he never gave up. He really never gave up on anything. He was... Uh, working on and um you know may god rest his his soul in heaven and uh you know may the family find find comfort um to move on on thursday no no one's going to report on this but on thursday the senate did absolutely nothing and you know they're not going to spend any time as they the whole point of remaining in session partially in August was to confirm all this backload of executive nominees you know Trump doesn't even have people confirmed at a at an assistant attorney general level to my knowledge this has never happened you know 18 months into a presidency um McConnell should be keeping them in on Saturdays Sundays to force democrats to relent on some of the rules of unanimous consent and you know their dilatory tactics, speed up the confirmations. He's not doing that. He should be holding a series of votes 
on illegal immigration. We should be focusing not just on Molly Tibbetts, but on all the people like her. 1,800 illegal alien homicides, almost 1,900, I believe, just in fiscal year 2017. To be clear, it doesn't mean that all the homicides occurred just in that year, but the number of people that ICE apprehended, and believe me, they don't apprehend all, all of them because of sanctuary cities, were responsible for almost 1,900 homicides in one year. No legislation to address that. No legislation to address identity theft, which is one of the worst problems, but one of the most redressable problems. I have a six-point plan in my Friday piece. I'll link to it in show notes. We're going to have Jessica Vaughn on, um, God willing, tomorrow on, on the show to discuss that, the broader problem of identity theft and what, how illegals do it and the problem with it and what we should do about it. Nothing about that. But what did they pass? They passed this appropriation bill we've been yelping about for a number of days now. Um, Labor, HHS, Department of Education, insidiously wrapped together with military spending. Increasing spending for all those departments over and beyond the record levels of the omnibus, which in themselves are above the Obama levels, which in themselves are 30 40% in some cases more than Trump promised in his budget blueprint. It totally funds Obamacare. It totally funds abortion. And it totally funds um, this refugee resettlement invasion. I have an article on this coming out. Actually, it looks like it was just posted by our editors. And um, we'll link to in show notes. But let's take one one by one. So abortion. So obviously, um, this bill this bill funds HHS, which, among other departments, is the most responsible for funding abortions. Right? Obviously, I mean that deals with um, healthcare expenditures and oversight of government grant programs to these so-called, you know, um, women's health centers. Now, obviously Republicans have long moved on from ever promising to defund Planned Parenthood because it was all a lie. There's a very important lesson I want to convey here. So Rand Paul submitted an amendment, and he did indeed get a vote on it, to um, – defund Planned Parenthood on the HHS title of this bill. So it got voted down, obviously, but you might look at it and say, well, look, you know, every Republican did vote for it except for Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. But as I always tell you, the problem here, the problem here is not, oh, most Republicans are pro-life except for Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. It's that most of them are not pro-life. They're a bunch of frauds. It's a name only except for a handful of those who are. Because then when it came time to the final passage of the bill, okay, so fine, I understand. You you vote for the um, amendment to funding Planned Parenthood, but it gets voted down by the rhinos and the Democrats. They didn't have 60 votes. Okay, now it comes to final passage, so now the bill – since the amendment to strip out that funding was voted down, the, the bill as is has the funding in it. So now you're required to vote against it. No. Every Republican except for six voted for it. Um, the ones who voted no were Toomey, Paul, Rish from Idaho, Lee from um, Utah, Crapo, and Flake from Arizona. Now, Flake, it's just because of the spending levels, you know, it was a freebie for him. So he's sometimes good on that, but he's bad on, obviously, abortion. He didn't care about that. So Flake did, you know, Ben Sass voted for it. I don't get it. Um, you know, weird. I'm actually sending a note to my team here. I didn't even notice that <laughs> until the show when I'm looking at this. I'm just looking at the screen now. Um, 
you know, I just want them to realize that because that that that's very disappointing there. But um, now to be clear, you might be wondering. There's a couple other names. Um, Cruz, um, Cruz voted. Cruz did not vote. Cruz is on the campaign trail. Obviously, would have voted against it. Um, McCain obviously wasn't there. Um, what other Republicans were there? Cornyn, Corker, and Fisher. Um. Those three, I, I got to assume they would have voted with the bad guys. It's just, you know, they, again, they didn't bother showing up um, because they didn't want to ruin their recess, which, frankly, as much as I could bash them, I don't blame them. If they're not going to do anything good anyway, why show up? But anyway, this is the point. And notice no national right to life. None of these phony Republican organizations raised hell over this. Oh, I am pro-life, pro-life. No, these are the same groups that are blocking Steve King's heartbeat, heartbeat bill. Nothing. This is the big fraud about pro-life Republicans. It's all a campaign agenda. And by the way, I just want to note, and, and Republicans are – they're so dumb they don't even aggressively go after the Democrats. Notice there wasn't a single Democrat who voted for the – Ran, ran Paul's amendment. So forget about voting for the final bill, but even, you know, you could say, well, the bill has a lot of provisions in it, but even the Rand Paul amendment isolating the abortion funding, Joe Manchin, the phony pro life Democrat, voted directly against a standalone amendment defunding Planned Parenthood. So, I mean, any notion that Joe Manchin is somehow a moderate, um, you know, it, it's just ridiculous. And I, of course, Republicans are pretty weak going after them. But anyway, that's that. Then I want to move on to Obamacare. Um, This is just really important, and I I might write it, write an entire article just on this. But but I mentioned a little bit in this piece. So, until now, Republicans have avoided ever since the passage of Obamacare, when they took over the House and the Senate, they avoided ever bringing to the floor the labor HHS Department of Education bill. Why? Because inevitably, you know, you'd have to fund Obamacare, and they didn't want to say they funded Obamacare. Now, they always funded it ultimately in the final bill, whether the catch-all, whether it's an omnibus or a continuing resolution, right, which funds the entire government. But they, you know, they were always squeamish about bringing a standalone HHS bill so they wouldn't um, be accused of funding Obamacare. Now they just, um, you know, they just don't care. They just don't care, uh, and that's and that's it. Just don't care. They are openly pro Obamacare. Th- this has been, I must say, this has been one of the most forgotten stories of 2018, 2017, 2018. We have a problem here. It's not just, oh, there's Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Almost every Republican except for Cruz, Lee, Paul, maybe Toomey, Ron John, Tom Cotton, two or three others, they support the entire philosophy behind Obamacare and the core elements of it. This is the single biggest fiscal policy issue. It's a fifth of our – sixth of our economy. It's the, responsible for the biggest infringement on freedom, the biggest creation of personal debt, national debt. This is the biggest fiscal policy issue, and the entirety of the Republican Party supports the left on it. And we're doing nothing to push this administration on the issue, although I would argue administratively they have done much better than Congress. They've done some good things. As are at HHS has done some good things. I do have to give him credit for that. But nonetheless, we keep we're not even litigating this in the primaries. It's just astounding. So anyway, before I move on, on top of this, you know, Mitch McConnell already long ago said we've always supported the pre-existing condition, the guaranteed issue community rating mandates, which is the core of Obamacare, right, rather than giving an alternative 
vision on healthcare to the American people and saying, wait a minute, the reason why you have a pre-existing condition problem is because of the left, right? Is because of what they're doing, is because they made insurance the king of healthcare through the original sin of the employer tax exemption and all the other things they've done to give the insurance lobby a monopoly on healthcare and make it not insurance so that there's no ability nor is there a need or a market because of all the federal programs of having like what you have for life insurance where from day one you have portable you know even even before you're born parents could take out for their kids like life insurance where they're covered so you have it in an, in an actually solvent way if they get sick from day one or if they get sick after a job that it's not dependent on a job and they have it with them, they cause the problem. But instead, every Republican supports not only giving Democrats a loincloth on the issue and defending them, but downright championing it. So 10 Republicans introduced legislation. So just so you know, background here, um, some groups have, have gone to the Fifth Circuit well, first the district judge, Judge um, uh, O'Connor, to try to say – use a whole other angle to say that Obamacare is unconstitutional and throw it out. I don't think they're going to succeed, but the point is you know, the courts are killing us. So here's one issue. You have an opportunity to use judicial supremacy to your advantage, whether you agree, agree with it or not. And now Republicans introduce a bill – to shield them from this, meaning to preemptively codify into statute even if the courts would strike it down. Could you imagine on immigration, on life, on marriage, on election law, you name it, the courts are destroying our society and Congress will not get on the playing field to fix bad court decisions in the various ways, in the various using the various tools that they have. But under the unlikely chance that they might strike down Obamacare, they're for an Obamacare fix. Here are the 10 Republicans. Chuck Grassley, Mr. Jailbreak himself. Lamar Alexander, who's the chairman of the health committee. Indistinguishable from his Democrat counterpart, um, uh, Patty Murray. Tom Tillis, he's an MS-13 Republican. From North Carolina, he is um, – he, I think he was the lead sponsor. Dean Heller from Nevada. See, this is a guy we're battling to reelect to the Senate. This is what victory looks like if he gets reelected. Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, Lisa Murkowski, Joni Ernst, liberal fool, Lindsey Graham, Roger Wicker, and John Barrasso, who was just reelected. John Barrasso, people think, is one of the most conservative from Wyoming. He is like the lead policy guy in healthcare. He's a doctor. He supports Obamacare. And Roger Wicker. Remember when Chris McDaniel promised to challenge Wicker and originally did, but he was scared that Trump would hurt him by endorsing Wicker, so he he got off of it. And he instead ran for the open seat, which is now um, you know, when um Cochran resigned. Now this Cindy Hyde-Smith, who is literally a Democrat her whole life, appointed big lightweight. She obviously voted for this stupid appropriation bill. And now Trump, even in the open seat, went out of his way and endorsed Cindy Hyde-Smith. And no conservative is, is holding him accountable for that. Because there's no conservative avenue to get the president on board with things. Just drives me nuts. Really, Mr. President. But th this is who we have. And again, it's not just these. It's pretty much all but putting it generously. There's 10 Republicans who oppose the core of Obamacare. That's probably putting it generously. Not 10 who are just going the other way. It's really 10. These are just the original sponsors here. But I, I wanted to read you the list because it has very prominent names like John Barrasso from very conservative states. That's what I'm telling you guys. This whole thing is much bigger than anything we're debating on day by day. We're sitting there having this food fight. Oh my gosh, we're going to elect a Republican Senate. 
to do what? They're indistinguishable from the left. The bill they passed, every Democrat, Bernie Sanders, okay, he's an independent, but he's, he happened to vote against it for his crazy reasons, but every other Democrat voted for this bill. Every Democrat voted for it. That should tell you everything you need to know. It's indistinguishable from the legislation you would see as Democrats, as Democrats controlling the Senate. And again, it's interesting. So really, the president will go and endorse Martha Roby, a rhino who actually crit- criticized him against the challenger. But he won't even stay neutral when you have someone who shares his campaign agenda and his type of supporters challenging a rhino who's not even an incumbent. She was selected. She's a lightweight. She has no business being in the Senate, and she was a Democrat most of her life. How in the world are we going to change the Senate in any way if we don't push better challenges, challengers, focus on these policies, and get the president to A, veto these bills, threaten a veto every day, and B, endorse better candidates, at least in open seats? But no. The president will endorse against Mark Sanford, even as an incumbent, which is unprecedented for a president, but he won't even stay neutral, much less, less, less endorse conservatives in um, open seats. Now, I know he's done this in some governor's races. He has made good endorsements, Ron DeSantis, Chris Kobach in the end, but um, not much in, 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 in the Senate, and that's, that's very problematic. Mississippi. Most conservative states. How we ever this is what you guys don't realize. As bad as the house is, remember when we had Andy Biggs on our show and he was saying, Look, you know, if you had the right leadership in the house, you'd have an overwhelming majority of house members would go along. The Senate is like indistinguishable from the Democrats. On any given issue, there's no more than ten somewhat conservatives. Fifteen to be generous. But this is this is the problem we have. Then there's the next thing, the next item here that was funded in this bill. Now, you might not think of um, Health and Human Services, HHS, as dealing with immigration. But really, it houses the agency that is most responsible for the core of the immigration problems we have now. Well, you would think, well, isn't that DHS? HHS houses the Office of Refugee Resettlement. You understand that there's been several hundred thousand of these young teenage, often even older, and they lie about their age, Central Americans coming over, keep in mind, from the most violent demographic of any civilization is young males. The most violent countries in the world are among them are in the Northern Triangle um, of Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and not to mention Mexico as well although not quite as high as those three countries. These are the people we're bringing in not only as illegal immigrants, but we actually treat them, we wind up giving them legal status because they're unaccompanied minors. Except those of you who have listened to this show long enough know that according to statute, you're only to be treated as a refugee if you are a victim of what is called, quote, a severe form of trafficking, and you don't have anyone in this country, you're, you're, you're not just unaccompanied through the border, but there's no adult relative in the country. The reality is 90 to 95% of them are self-trafficked by their own families who are indeed already here illegally, and the Office of Refugee Resettlement is completing that conspiracy to reunite them with the illegals when the illegals themselves should be thrown out along with them. And these are the people responsible for the drug and MS-13 crises that took place da 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 right around 2014, right when those two phenomenons took off. And you could actually plot that on a graph. 2014. Um... That is the story with that. So you would think if you have a budget bill, you would do everything you can to put in policy riders to stop this. 
and say, no, only someone who's proven to be a victim, not their family doing it. And if indeed, you know, one of the thing, provisions you could have put in there is from the Carter bill to mandate that ICE identify who these kids are going to and deport their parents. But no, they fully funded the refugee resettlement program, actually a little bit more, and did nothing to it. That's a very big deal. You know, we're talking about, we're going to talk all, all week about John McCain's death. And, and again, you know, it's sad, but he, he was 81. How many people have needlessly died young, like Molly Tibbetts, at the hands of illegals? And now we're not going to talk about that because of the news cycle. That's been pushed out. And again, I don't want to focus on any one individual and, you know, raise their prominence more than certainly the family and, and you know, the parents want to, you know, be involved in this. But it's not just one person. As I said, just last fiscal year, ICE arrest apprehended illegals charged with 1,900 homicides. This is one fiscal year. Now, again, a lot of them, they, you would say it's not, the murders weren't just one fiscal year. Uh, they, they, the murders themselves could have been from years past. But it's, this is not just one year. It's every fiscal year they apprehend you know, 1,500, 1,600, 1,900, whatever. It's close to that every year. So it rolls over. So by the same token, you know, you'll tell me, well, it was really from years past. You can't just say it's one fiscal year. Yeah, but it happens every fiscal year. You know, on average, is about seventeen thousand homicides in the country. You you look at nineteen hundred. I mean, that that's that's insane. That's really, I mean, and as we noted throughout the last couple of weeks, almost every one of those is an avoidable murder if we were simply following our sovereignty laws. Almost every one of them. But this is this is something like 11%. Illegals comprise about 3.5% of the population. You know, if it's true what we're told that there are, you know, like 10.8 million or whatever how many illegals there are. So that's a big deal. And again, we're going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow with um with Jessica Vaughn. I I want to finally get to one thing there's a couple I just want to go down a couple of things in my stack here that I wanted to go over with you guys um jailbreak let me explain what has gone right right I've been lamenting a lot of bad things here let me show you what has gone right and why that should be a blueprint for other issues getting the president's attention on the right issues the right veto strategies the right budgets the right Message and the right endorsements from jailbreak. Um, as you well know, you're the first audience to, to know about this bill or two bills they were pushing to retroactively release a number of violent criminal aliens and Americans uh, f- from federal prison, top level drug traffickers who, you know, undoubtedly committed many, many other violent crimes. So, I don't want to tell you, look, we're home free and this is over because this effort has more lives than the Catwoman. You know, every time we think we're done with it, they they revive it because the movement behind it is is powerful as anything, and the counter movement is very small. But Free Beacon has an article I'm going to link to in show notes that the president officially announced he opposes not just the sentencing front end bill, but the back end what they call prison reform, the First Step Act. After months of everyone saying he supports it, there's a very important lesson here. Um, from what I have heard from those in the meeting, um, the Free Beacon article is correct. So I will link to it in show notes. That Jeff Sessions, in despite the acrimonious relationship he has with President Trump, in the meeting together with Kushner and some of these other guys on jailbreak, and I think the ground was prepped. You know, not just by Sessions, but by Tom Cotton and by these law enforcement groups that you know got to the president. He said very clearly, do you understand this bill is not just prison reform? It releases thousands of criminal aliens early. It releases thousands of violent American criminals early, and it releases others into halfway houses and 
home confinement that is very ill-defined, ill-supported with money and infrastructure, and very dangerous. And it was said during the meeting, do you understand that these fentanyl traffickers that you say you want to give the death penalty to, you understand that these people will be the recipients of this under the bill. So not only will we not give them the death penalty or increase um, sentencing, but actually, actually, we're going to let them go. And the president was like, are you kidding me? I'm not for that. We've been saying this all along. This was obvious to anyone who read the bill, but the president didn't know. And this is the lesson. If you actually get in his face, more often than not, he'll agree with conservatives. So why don't we have a movement getting in his face on all these other issues and endorsements? That's the lesson we need to learn here. Remind him of his campaign promises. Remind him of how what's going on is undermining them. And then go from there. Which is really, really frustrating. Really frustrating. Um, it's just, just awful. But again, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be too down. This is good news. This is definitely good news. Um, as we as we run out of time here, I'm just trying to, you know, some of it we might have to save for next episode. But I want to go through a couple of other things here. Um, in general, just so you know, one of the big um, threats that we face as part of this jailbreak movement, and just so you know. It's very comprehensive. See, they only like to talk about, oh, nonviolent, this, that. And really, it's for violent. It's front end. It's back end. It's the prosecutions. It's the police tactics. It's the evidentiary standards. It's every aspect of criminal justice through and through. They want leniency after leniency and take the existing leniencies, which aren't lenient enough, and blow holes in them. So you have prison reform, sentencing reform, police reform, prosecuting reform. So one of the big things you have now is Bail reform. And as you well know, whatever we see nationally at some point started in California. This is from the Sacramento um, uh, Sacramento uh, uh, B. A bill approved Tuesday by the California Senate to end bail and replace it with risk assessment system is headed to Governor Jerry Brown, who has indicated he supports it. Senators approved the bill 2612. It would make California the first state to completely end bail for suspects awaiting trial. You read that right. You read that right. This is insane. It's not even like a certain category. I mean, they've done it in Maryland um, on a limited basis, and it's disastrous. But I want you to know how deep this movement goes. I want you to understand what's happening here. And this is why all these people like Jim DeMint that say, oh, I just want in these circumstances, and really those circumstances don't exist, you're playing with fire. If you're a conservative or libertarian who, who supports criminal justice reform, just know what you're doing is lending your weight to a runaway train, freight train, down a hill. If you think you're going to be able to put the brakes on at the point you think you want to stop it, think again. You're going to be complicit in taking it all the way. They want to abolish prison. They want to abolish bail. And this is not just about nonviolent uh, white-collar crimes. Actually, those crimes they'll, they'll be tough on. So this is, this is a very broad problem. For now, it looks like we dodged the bullet for a couple months. Who knows? We're going to remain vigilant. But this is a long-term problem that almost the entire phony conservative movement has signed on to something that is – I mean I cannot think of something more consequential. If you want to know why I've dedicated so much time when you probably think like no one else even talks about this, why am I dedicating so much time to it? That's why. This is not just – I mean California is about to abolish bail. Um. You know, 
anyway, um, that's what that. One one more item. I just want to get to the courts. As I was on the air, um, my staff sent me that this Judge Lasik, the guy, remember the 3D gun printing guy that says that he's going to enjoin the administration from not regulating this company in Texas from just disseminating information on the internet. So now he issued a permanent injunction. He put a temporary injunction a couple of weeks ago. Now it's a permanent injunction. So there you go. In addition, in addition, a this federal judge Jackson in the D.C. district said that Trump cannot enforce his executive order on making it easier to fire um, public sector employees, you know, federal workers. You know, so among, there were a couple of things to this order. Among them was, you know, they have a probationary period now of 120 days um, to, to show themselves, you know, when they're put on notice that they're not performing properly. He was going to truncate that to 30 days. The judge said you can't do that. Now, I will be honest here. In this case, I, di- I, I did not go through the statutes. So, you know, they're saying it violates statutes, which could be, but it doesn't matter. Because this is this case is unique. Most of the time, you know, I'm a stickler. I'm saying, look, you got to follow statute. It was Obama who didn't, and usually it's merely the president is just resorting back to statute. This case is a little different because this case, even if it violates statute, the statute is unconstitutional. You know, I'm a big stickler. The you know executive branch has to follow a statute, but there's one thing the legislature cannot do: you cannot force upon a president. Any personnel he doesn't want. Right? You, you just can't do that. That's Article 2 powers. That is, those are Article 2 powers. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite evident. There, there's no way, way around that. Um, trying to get what the famous quote from Madison I've used a couple of times here. But just so we have an idea, um, where is this? Uh, um, you know, something to the effect of if there was ever a power that the president had. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. If any power whatsoever is in the nature of executive, it is the power of appointing overseeing and controlling those who execute the laws. Congress could legislate the policies. Congress could do anything they want. Congress could abolish the offices. But And, and with higher high-ranking people, the Senate has to confirm your person. But what Congress cannot do is say, you have to keep this employee. No. he is the, the president is the chief executive officer of the entire executive branch. He could fire anyone he wants. Anyone who tells you that doesn't understand the most basic Article Two powers. That is obvious. It's true of every president, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with his decision, and that is that. And there's a broader lesson here before we uh, wrap it up today. Um, you know, and that's this. All these cases if you notice, go through the D.C. circuit. A lot of people think we're about to win and back the Supreme Court. Right? This is going to be the big news starting next week. Um, immediately upon return, they're going. the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to have the big, high, highly anticipated, highly publicized, highly hyped confirmation hearings for Judge Kavanaugh to be the next justice of the Supreme Court and fill the seat of Anthony Kennedy. Now, among the many reasons why you know you know from here that you know you, you could get nine conservatives on the Supreme Court, but if you don't change the way our body politic views decisions of the lower courts and all the ways the left controls that, we still ha- we're going to have ninety percent of the problems persist with the courts. It's not going to change anything. We had Professor F- F- Fitzpatrick, former Scalia clerk, uh, he now is a law professor at Vanderbilt University. We had him on the show a couple weeks ago making this case. Um, the Supreme Court is hearing fewer cases than ever. The lower 
courts are hearing more cases than ever. A lot of them don't go to the Supreme Court. But just so you know, the most important court after the Supreme Court is the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal court, not to be confused with the D.C. um, Municipality Court, right? And this court hears all the federal regulatory matters. I mean, by definition, an executive order, most cases um, dealing with, you know, just just the executive branch, those cases are going to be taken to this circuit. Now, they first go to the district-level court and then the appeals court. So the appeals court is often called the second most important court. Now, this case um, with the reforms that President Trump implemented about getting rid of these uh, you know, badly performing dudes, it went to the district court. And it was this uh, Judge Amy Jackson, who is um, an Obama appointee, who decided it. Now, as you well know, um, district panels, it's its a random, um, just random assortment of of judges. You know, it's like, like any other panel, it's determined by lottery who takes up the case. But it's, it's, it's the law of, of odds. And basically, Trump has three appointees to this court and no other republican has any active members some of them are senior status but among the active members um what is this three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven i'm just counting here um democrats have an 11 to 3 majority so we have a major problem and and most of them were appointed by obama so they're very young so they're not going anywhere for a very long time you look at the the appellate level, and that's again, that's considered like you know the second most um, important court. There, officially among the nine, um, you know, just like the Supreme Court, on this court there are nine um, uh, active uh, active judges. Or um, I'm just looking here. Maybe I got that wrong. I'm sorry. There's 11. 11 judges. And what do we got here? I haven't done this in a while. One, two, three, four Republican appointees. And three, four, five, six, seven Democrat appointees. So they have a seven to four majority. And again, Obama has the lion's share. Um, you look at the ages. If anything, it's the you know Karen Henderson, who's pretty good. She is among the oldest. You do have a couple of older Clinton appointees. Um, you know that's it. Now Kavanaugh is one of them, and he's obviously going to go to the Supreme Court. So there's going to be a vacancy. So we're going to. Um, fill that, but that's just getting back to you know. In other words, as of now, it's seven to three. That will, that will just get it back to seven to four. And again, I mean, you know, Thomas Griffith is not great. He's he's an, he's the other George W. Bush appointee. Um, and you better believe all of the Democrat appointees are wild on that court. You know, again, we're, we're you know, imagine we're we're all gaming out. Man, we're gonna get a permanent five to four majority on the Supreme Court. Maybe there's more. Just keep in mind, Democrats have a very long term seven to four majority on the second most important court, and that court deals with all of these similar cases. So, just another example of how we're not gonna change the courts this way. Anyway, a lot more going on tomorrow is gonna be another immigration day with Jessica Vaughn. Look out for that episode. As always, I need you guys to support our sponsors who are willing and have the guts to put their product behind a show like this that will actually speak the truth, irrespective of any political correctness. So I want you guys to go to purple.com and check out Purple's amazing cutting-edge technology for their mattresses. These are the most comfortable mattresses around. They also make pillows, and they make this amazing seat cushion that I use in perpetuity now because um, I have really bad um, hip pain I've been getting 
from just sitting so long and doing shows and writing and doing other interviews and whatever. I, I try to get up from now and then, but it's, it's just, it, it takes its toll on my hips. It has really solved the problem. Um, it's amazing. It is firm, but comfortable addresses the pressure points, but gives you the full support. If you issue promo code, Daniel, you're going to get a free pillow with the purchase of a mattress, but look at their other products. And again, if you think it's a lot of money to shell out, um, you're not looking to get a mattress now. It's a hundred day free guarantee um, as a trial period. Free shipping here, free returns if you don't want it. Absolutely no, um, no investment here. But I think you'll like it, and if you decide to keep it, 10-year warranty. Purple.com, the best, most comfortable mattresses in America. Thank you all for listening. God bless. See you tomorrow. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 